more than one in five searches on the internet is about sex. <laughs> There's an incredibly large amount of organic interest in this topic. That's Lucy Walk, the founder of Normal, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Welcome back to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates, and this is the podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. This was a special episode that was recorded in front of about 1,000 travelers at Sunrise, a startup festival hosted by Blackbird in November. I chatted with Lucy Walk, the founder of Normal, about how she is changing the conversation on sex and relationships, how to build a successful community when the starting point is loaded with so much stigma, and the challenges that are confronted when you are trying to launch a range of sex toys, the nuts and bolts of launching a D2C business at speed, and of course, a heck of a lot more. Here is my conversation with Lucy live at Sunrise. Five, thank you. How good. This is a seriously good turnout for the 4 p.m. graveyard session as described by my good friend Andrew Rothery, if he's still here. Yesterday, as sort of Tom touched on, the great challenge that we all have is to tell our story. And founder, tell story, inspires others, they do something about it. Then at Sunrise, you've got a bunch of different companies some of which like Harrison, Fleet, XY Sense, Ed Rollo. Since they first joined us on the Wild Hearts podcast, uh, they've gone on to hire hundreds of people just from that first story that happened a while ago for them. And so to come full circle, in the first episode of Wild Hearts was with uh, Tim Doyle, Earn the Right to Exist, if some of you have heard it. At that time, there was probably 20 people in the Eucalyptus team and one of the people out of the 200 that they've added since was Lucy. And now it's with great privilege that I get to sit here and we get to explore Lucy's story and really come full circle. So uh, I'm truly honored. Lucy is honestly one of the smartest friends I know. She is being super courageous with the mission that Normal has. And so I would also like to note two things. One, this is a live podcast, so I need everyone to yell and get amongst it. So whenever someone's listening back at home, they can go, wow, that was a 10,000 strong crowd. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, too, I do want to highlight that this talk might cover sexual harassment and trauma and stress. And I just want to acknowledge that and just make sure that everyone in the audience um, and listening at home uh, just takes care of their safety first. So... Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the, uh, on the Wild Hearts podcast. Yesterday, Flavia mentioned at Fleet that impact is in the soul. Without sex, love, intimacy, relationships, there is no soul. So why is it so hard to talk about sex? It's a great question. Big one. Big one. <laughs> I think, uh, as you say, sex, intimacy, and relationships are an incredibly important part of human flourishing and well-being. One of the things that we are normal to hear all the time from our community is that I don't know how to put into words what I want. I've never seen it modeled on screen. The main examples that I see of discussions about sex are in porn or in pop culture, but they don't feel like something I can execute for myself. I don't learn this in school. And so like people feel like they have to invent that language for themselves. And that's a pretty high burden to put on anyone. And so I think 
you know, as a culture, like we have uh, a long history of religious and cultural ideas about sex being sinful, about sex being something that should only exist inside marriage or should only exist for the creation of children. I think even if as a society, less and less of us believe those things. It doesn't mean that we've uh, taken the kind of proactive step into how do you develop language to speak well about sex and relationships. And we haven't, I think, given enough examples in our culture of what that should look like as well. Mm. And is there a demand to learn? Are people curious? Where are they going? Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, more than one in five searches on the internet is about sex. <laughs> well, wow. yeah, there's an incredibly large amount of organic interest in this topic. And you can see that in everything from like the levels of engagement that you see on content on social media about this to like the levels of kind of searches that you see when people are in spaces where they feel comfortable and able to ask questions, which is often not in person. It's digital and it's in places where we feel we have anonymity. And yeah, I think you also like see it in the response to what happens when you see good ways to talk about sex being modeled. So we do a lot of work with universities. So we sort of work with about a quarter of Australian universities presently delivering sex education and consent education in various forms on campus. Mm. And I think one of the really interesting things that we see there is like, the most popular moment of most of those workshops is where our sex coach, Georgia, who's amazing, will put up like a slide on the screen that's like, here are 20 specific phrases to talk about what you want, the fact that you might want to stop, the fact that you might want to pause, the fact that you might want to change the way that you're doing things, or to ask someone about what they want. And people like don't actually get down on their knees and pray, but it's like, <laughs> I think um, react really, really strongly to um, getting information that helps them to have those conversations properly. Mm. I guess the next question is then, like, how, how do we start normalizing that conversation? How do we, like, where do you go and, and make it a safe place and evolve our language? And maybe, like, I know that you did social sciences yeah. uh, in, in uni and college. So maybe look through that lens of, like, changing uh, that conversation. Yeah, definitely. Like, for background, like, I studied social science, which is, like, all the ologies. It's like yeah. psychology, sociology, anthropology, <laughs> um, economics, political science, like a kind of blend of those things. And like the, the basic idea behind most social science is like, what are the, hum the units of human society? How does human psychology work? How does our individual psychology work? How does it work in groups? What creates order? And then what creates change? Like that's mm -hmm. kind of like the big themes of social science. And I think um, on a topic like this, a lot of the time what you're trying to do is tackle really like old ingrained social stigmas that um, prevent us from having open conversations about sex. And you can lean on a lot of interesting concepts from social science. Like I actually think a lot about uh, the gay rights movement as an example. In terms of like social movements and movements for change, like the gay rights movement is one of the fastest and most effective um, changes we've ever seen in our history. Like in a process of decades, it went from being illegal to have gay sex to the legalization of same-sex marriage to complete tone shift in popular culture to a complete change, particularly among like a generation like Gen Z, where now like one in five people identify as LGBTQ. Mm. Um, like you can even see like higher rates of identification generation by generation. I think there's a really like, you know, how did that process happen reveals a lot about how does change occur? So like one of the things that was really important in the gay rights movement was the coming out movement, um, which was effectively saying like lots of people who were in the closet, who weren't out to their families or their workplaces or their loved ones taking kind of courageous individual decisions to come out because it, it's very easy to be scared of, scared of or disgusted by 
something if you don't know it and if a member of your in-group, so someone who is recognisable to you or who you share identities with or who you share experiences with, like there's no one in your in-group who shares that characteristic. So what was really powerful about the coming out movement was actually the fact that you saw, um, you know, people who are like, I don't know any gay people and you're like, actually my son is gay or actually my neighbour is gay or actually this person who I know is gay. I think knowing that this is like not foreign to you and this is not an other was a really powerful thing and like we see that a lot through something like normal like in uh for example word of mouth being like the single biggest channel through which we grow yeah. <laughs> and particularly like friends speaking to friends yeah. and uh making the decision to do something like buy a sex toy or the decision to go to a workshop or the decision to like self-educate about sex move from something that feels like edgy or a vice or sort of controversial into something that feels normal in the name. Um, <laughs> but like another, a really great example, just like off the gay rights movement would be like, I think the power of parasocial relationships. So if anyone knows the TV show, Will and Grace, like mm. that was the first mainstream broadcast TV show where a gay character or a couple of gay characters were sort of main characters on screen. And that show actually like has a noticeable, like is correlated with a noticeable uptick in support for the gay rights movement in the United States in like lots of polling data. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is a parasocial relationship is like a relationship that we perceive ourselves to have with a character or a person we don't actually know personally. And I think for a lot of people, like knowing those characters and associating those characters with like not threat or risk or something that was controversial, but something that was familiar um, was really powerful as yeah. well. And like in something like what we do, where for a lot of people, if you've internalized a lot of stigma around stigma and shame around sex, it can be very difficult to be like, I want to go and try out a sex toy. Like that makes you feel disgusted, scared, ashamed, like some, it's something that you should hide. And I think being able to kind of leverage uh, things like social proof, make sure that we are foregrounding creators who people identify with um, and can see as leaders and sort of feel comfortable around, um, or even things like having, you know, when we designed the brand, we made a really conscious decision uh, to make sure that we had visible, warm, engaging faces of human people in it, like myself and our sex coach, Georgia. So every, like, every uh, piece of, like every product you buy from us has like these explainers from like real lovely humans being like, awesome, here's how you use it. Here's a little bit of social history about the wand massager. Like, <laughs> here's like, um, you know, ways to use it solo, here's ways to use it with a partner. And like, yes, that's education, but it's also, everything that sits under that is it's saying this is something that you should feel comfortable doing mm. and this is something that you can you can do so i think like it's a space where social proof and parasocial relationships and framing and all of those kind of concepts become really impactful um like it's not like selling toilet paper or mattresses mm. <laughs> you're you're trying to help people tackle like quite deep sort of psychological stigma yeah. yeah and like i want to extend and sort of explore that a little bit more so like as you said, it's sort of like on the face of it seems like the anti word of mouth <laughs> yeah. opportunity. Can you share how, I guess, your learnings or experiences as you've been building out the community with normal and you touched on there like a few examples of like sort of the emotions someone should be feeling, but how have you sort of seen that play out, uh, especially in the early days at normal? Yeah, it, it's a really funny and interesting one around community. I think early on, we kind of had this like set of decision points where we were like, do we want to create like a, a digital community that is like a, a space where people can come and speak about sex? And we actually kind of decided not to create like a Facebook group or whatever, you know, a Discord, because we thought that like 
in a community like that without mediation, with lots of people bringing a whole range of different experiences from trauma to positive experiences around sex and a whole range of different understandings of sex, that um, you may well accidentally create a space where people are not comfortable or are having bad experiences or interactions that don't feel positive for them. But the other insight that came through incredibly clearly early on was that uh, we're all really, really, because we don't talk openly about sex, we're all really curious about what normal is. Like, the biggest question that people have about sex is, am I normal? The biggest fear that people have about sex is that they're not. And so being able to show people's experiences to each other without necessarily making people feel exposed and vulnerable or creating interactions that are not positive became a really important part of it. So like think of it as like latent or dark community or like mediated community. One of the things we do that sort of is a really big foundational pillar of the brand is basically facilitating like on mass conversations about sex. So we'll do like call outs on our social media, call outs on our emails, um, asking people for perspectives on different issues or asking people to um, sort of give us their thoughts or to send in their questions. And then we'll make sure that we like answer those and share them back to people. And I think it can be such an incredible relief to know that like an issue that you've struggled with is something that someone else has struggled with or that like you know, a question that you had is something is a question that someone else had. And mm. so that type of stuff I think can be really powerful. Um, and then a big other part of it is doing research that actually fills the data gap around sex, dating and relationships. Like in Australia, you'll have like the ABS and the AIHW doing like the census, but they don't ask particularly detailed questions about sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one day. I'm glad you have the <laughs> One day. <laughs> they won't ask particularly detailed questions about sex. In fact, you also can't properly filter on things like LGBTQ plus status. So we even can't get answers to like, you know, how often do people have experiences of discrimination or how often do people um, have issues with accessing healthcare? Like we, we really can't even literally answer those questions. And then you have like the other, at the other end of the spectrum, like lots of private actors, like brands who will sort of survey like a few hundred of their members and be like, it turns out like 90% of Australians own a sex toy. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's like a statistically Shock. significant sample. Yeah. So one of the things that we also try and do is do like high quality sort of demographically representative research that allows us to speak with authority about what's going on for Australians and subsegments of the population. And that is part of everything from like briefing into media and sort of shaping conversations with media through to like sharing back to our audience. And it also becomes part of like product development and how we think about our roadmap too. Mm. One of the earliest questions I think on this Sunrise like stage, like Rick would always ask, what was it like when your product got in the hands of customers? Um, what was the first moment like? <laughs> like your very first customer how did that feel? What was the emotional ro like roller coaster like? I actually remember being like, because um, it, it, it had been a really quick building of the brand, like incredibly fast. And we'd been like air freighting, you know, products to make sure it made it out of China before Chinese New Year and the whole country shut down for several oh, yeah. months. And like, I was exhausted and like kind of falling asleep at the launch party. <laughs> um, I remember going to bed and being both incredibly excited to be at the end of that process um, and like have got to that point, really excited about what was to come and then just like deeply terrified that we'd fucked up and like all the customer research was wrong and no one was going to buy anything. And then oh, we would fine. just have like a warehouse of sex toys that we had nothing to do with. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, just scary. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But like also like amazing. Like I think the thing about getting to work on a space which A, brings people pleasure, but also like can really like profoundly change their experience of like sex with themselves, sex with a partner and change their confidence in a really intimate area of their life. Like is that when you get like reviews or when you get feedback from customers that's positive, it's 
like an amazing feeling. So like, yeah, there's a lot of times where I've like cried at reviews and just being like incredibly grateful that we get to do that as well. Yesterday, I think Mel was talking about like this analogy of like chaos to clarity. <laughs> where did you find yourself, I guess, on that string when customers started using the product? How did your vision or roadmap or product uh, change as a result of yeah. that information? I think um, like when we launched, we'd taken a look at like how are sexual wellness products, which is like sex toys, essentials like lube, cleaning spray, like you can expand that kind of like realm out as far as you want, um, but like broadly like physical products that help you to have better sex. We'd taken a look at the space and seen, well, the history of this space is like really confusing and alienating customer experiences. So either you're going into like a sex shop that's like hidden from the outside, overcrowded, like wobbly pink dildos everywhere. Like no one's comfortable asking any questions. <laughs> um, you're worried that like the dude behind the counter is going to open the overcoat at you. Like, um, like <laughs> it's like, you know, for a lot of people, like that experience of like too much choice, not enough knowledge about your own anatomy or about what products do to actually make a good choice, not enough kind of customer decision support. And also like, you know, these are quite high value products. And if you pick, choose the wrong one, then you're kind of left with something that you don't feel you know what to do with. <laughs> and so like, this is a long winded answer, I'll get to it. Um, but ah. when we launched, we tried to tackle that problem really clearly, which was like, how do we solve all of these pain points that customers have to make a whole generation of people much more comfortable engaging with this space. And um, I think we built like, uh, you know, product education really clearly into everything that we were doing. So everything from like, we'll have like a recommendation quiz that helps people choose the right thing to like, we'll um, have these kind of like quite rich video explainers about the products. Um, we'll have a lot of education on the site that's like taking you through the anatomy that you missed in school. Cause what we get taught is basically anatomy is about the, preventing pregnancy, but not anything that's about having pleasurable sex. Mm. So we were really trying to do that. I think the thing that we rapidly started to see once we got product into the hands of customers was that that is only like the first step on the journey of people sort of having the type of sexual experiences that they want to. And that so many blockers around sex are things that require education, content, community being made to feel normal being shown how to have conversations about these types of things mm. so like call it like the sex learning curve <laughs> like you know the first part is anatomy physiology and technique but actually the things that come after that are much more like communication skills and like personal self-reflection skills as well and so i think we we sort of became more and more aware that um if we want like if our vision is like that you know everyone has like the tools to explore sexuality on their terms that that isn't just physical tools. There's a lot more that has to happen in in education and content as well. Mm. Yeah, let's let's stick to that. Like, what what does the future kind of hate the the future of X? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, what does sex tech sex like, robots look obviously? Like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like everyone everyone hears sex tech and they're like it's sex robots. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but run me through what like an experience with normal looks like in five years time or yeah. Um, I would say like I would feel like done or like I would feel very excited. I probably won't be done, but like. Um, it's always day one. Yeah, always day one. <laughs> but yeah, I think if we get to a point in five years where across a lifetime of sexual concerns, curiosities and challenges, like from everything that's like as a teenager, you're trying to understand your own body, you're trying to understand what feels good to you, you're trying to learn how to communicate, you're trying to explore dating and intimacy for the first time through to like you start having long-term relationships, things like libido, desire, arousal, changes in the body, sexual dysfunction, like relationship skills. 
and like sex while aging, sex and menopause, like there's this enormous suite of challenges for which we are just incredibly poorly prepared by formal sex education mm. uh, that happen across a lifetime. If we have like free, high quality expert led education around those topics where people and in a place where people um, are choosing to look for that information, I would be incredibly pleased. Like if we're at the top of every search result for those types of sexual concerns and if we're the thing that comes up on Pornhub <laughs> and if we're the thing that comes up on Reddit um, and if we're the thing that comes up on social, like I really want to meet people where they are on those types of concerns and I want anyone who needs that information to be able to access it um, as well. Hmm. Yeah, so it's like, you know, not ambitious, it's fine. It's not ambitious at all. Just it's a like library. One. <laughs> a huge library. I think that's like a really interesting point, go where the users are. Is there sort of a disadvantage to going in like some of those darker spots on the web? Yep. Like how do you, how do you sort of think about that? Um, our comment section is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of why is this on my For You page? <laughs> no, I think like there is a downside to, you know, obviously going to like places that are more like the wild west of the internet um, mm. in terms of like the types of receptions you can get from various different people in those places. I also think that's actually where I really want to see a lot more like sexual wellness brands go. Like mm. I think um, the first wave of this space has been brands talking to allies and talk like preaching to the converted to, mm. to a degree, like lots of brands have focused particularly on the issues faced by people with vulvas and LGBTQ plus people, um, which I think is incredibly important because for a long time, those groups have sort of their sexuality has been erased or neglected in representations of sex. And that has consequences like the gender orgasm gap. And, you know, I think like even the fact that our sex education basically doesn't cover safe LGBTQ plus sex. But if you want to solve problems in this space, you can't just speak to the people who are clamoring to hear from you. Um, I think even like we'll do lots of workshops with our users and particularly um, we'll hear from kind of female identifying people like, hey, look, I've actually done the work on myself. Like I feel empowered. I've learned what I like. I I've like closed the orgasm gap for myself in our relationship, but can you please go talk to my partner? Mm. And uh, I, I think what that reflects is like, there is a really big conversation that needs to happen around like masculinity and sex. And uh, it's going to be in the Andrew Tate corners of the internet. Mm. <laughs> in addition to, I think people who already like bought into that as an idea. Yeah. yeah. We can't talk too much about the product roadmap. So maybe like if we look in the room mirror, what was it like building a hardware product? Strangely enough, I actually grew up around people building hardware. Um, so, like my um, my dad runs a playground company. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I like to say we're both in play in slightly different ways. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, so actually, like I grew up with him being like, I sketched a product, and then like you know three months later, it was like welded and like in the ground, and like could wow. actually like see see that process happening. Which yeah, strangely, it sort of actually felt a little bit similar when we started doing it, but. Um, yeah, I think like developing um, like products in this space is maybe the thing that I draw attention to is that it is different to if you're just developing like a product in a category that's slow moving and simple and where people don't have strong emotions about it. The product choices that you make in this space, everything from like color and shape to like usability to like packaging to just like everything that you are doing is communicating to a customer about how they should feel about themselves mm. in a way that like toilet paper probably doesn't. <laughs> and so I, I think there's like some complexity to that. So like, if, you know, for example, we've been developing like new products since we launched and some of the ones in the pipeline like began with like really extensive like surveys of like 500 to 1,000 people asking about not just like 
what are your goals for sex, but like um, much more deeply about like values, beliefs and attitudes um, because in the way that you create a product and then you wrap it in like content and experience, like for someone to take the leap of doing something that feels edgy or risky to them, you really need to design for that. But yeah, like, you know, do survey, gather up like the things that we want to do, think about how we pay our content and physical product, think about what like visual cues will convey. And then there is like, you know, think about how many vibrations, what level of frequency, is it buzzy or rumbly? Like just the hike, how big is it? Like, which can occasionally be a really interesting problem um, as well. Like we accidentally, like we were developing a, a butt plug at one point and we think the manufacturer accidentally like two or three X to the measurement that we were asking for. <laughs> um, so it got to the office and we were like, oh God. <laughs> um, I was like, it's going to be good for someone, but that was not what we intended. Um, yeah. So I, I like around stuff like that, like, you know, you do all that process and then there is honestly a moment where you like draw a thing on a whiteboard and you're like, that yeah. <laughs> and then everyone laughs at how bad your drawing is and then you hand it to a 3d renderer and then they start like mocking up versions of it you start 3d printing it so you can actually see and look at it and then you start working with a manufacturer on like golden sample well working through iterations of samples until you get to a golden sample that you're happy with and then you press go on manufacturing so it's a little different to software a little bit different yeah <laughs> i completely forgot that your dad had um yeah. had a career in, in building playgrounds it's amazing but it, it sounds like building products is in your dna but you've also had a career in consulting, which is quite service orientated. Um, what, what did you need to unlearn from going from that sort of service background into building something from scratch? Yeah, I think like with consulting, like it teaches you some incredibly valuable skills. And I'm really grateful for those, particularly I think in like a zero to one stage of a startup or when you're like thinking about the prioritization that you have to do and, and what will move a lever and what won't. But I think as a consultant, I probably spent like, 50% of my time proving to clients that I was solving the problem and like only 50% of the time max actually solving it. Um, mm. I think the, the shift into like a product company has been so much about being like, do you think it's a good idea? What's your level of confidence and what's the level of risk? Okay, go do it. Um, so it's much more action oriented, which I think is really valuable. And I think some consultants kind of struggle with that, mm. that shift as well. Like you might actually prefer being an advisor to being someone who has a really direct feedback loop for all of your good, bad and middling decisions. Mm. <laughs> so that was probably like the biggest one. It was just like- So interesting. Yeah. So what was the journey where you started to pick up speed in that final 20%? Where you went, I did something, <laughs> I did something, I did something. And then you picked up and sort of, yourself or divorce yourself from like that 80 20 idea yeah i i remember a moment where like we had to make final decisions and, and commit probably like a few hundred thousand dollars to like our first like big shipment of product and we had like a deadline to do it by christmas and i wanted like more iterations of the product and i wanted more research and more certainty about what we were doing and one of the um the eucalyptus founders benny just found me in the boardroom literally surrounded by like 20 different sex toy samples with my head on the table <laughs> which is like okay <laughs> um pick one yeah yeah he literally like held up two two sex toys in my face and was like pick one um and, and he was like you're not going to get more information he was oh, completely wow. right and he was like also you know all the information already like you know all of this yeah and and he was completely right i was like that one and then that's one of our bestsellers today. So, I love yeah. that story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, a necessity, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, like it's one of the hardest skills to build. It's like tell a story and then do something about it. But I thank you for sharing. Um, speaking of eucalyptus, what was it like growing up in one of the greatest growth machines probably in the world? It's pretty awesome. For anyone who doesn't know it, eucalyptus is like Australian house of brands. 
the goal is like, um, well, I think actually, interestingly, like we could probably say like over time, path dependency has meant that like the way that you frames its mission has evolved anyway. But certainly like at the beginning, the idea was like, you can launch D2C brands using shared infrastructure and that will help you to more rapidly launch scale and win in those markets. And I think over time, we've gone much deeper. Yuke has gone much deeper into kind of more complex conditions and health tech as it sort of sees the opportunity in those things and sees the synergies for a portfolio in that. But I think like, yeah, getting to learn from like a team who um, had come from scaling Koala before, the mattress company. So um, Tim and Charlie came out of there. Tim is a growth marketer. Charlie, as like any sort of incredible like advertising creative, like all things brand building person, was just like the best introduction that I could have asked for. Particularly, I think coming out of consulting where like you learn high level business strategy, but you actually don't really touch the nuts and bolts of digital marketing and the nuts and bolts of like creative. And so like there are a lot of like people at Uke to whom I own Oh, massive apologies because I had no idea how to work with them <laughs> at the beginning. Mm. But I think, yeah, getting to like learn from them about how to build like world-class brands really quickly was incredibly great. And then like the rest of the team, like Benny is like a freak of a strategic thinker. He's so good. And Alexi, who's the CFO, who was also like C CFO, COO, chief legal officer, chief like chief HR, like just everything. Like he, he's the person who makes your systems run. Yeah. Um, like that combination of people around you is a, is a pretty lucky thing to mm. get to launch with. Yeah. What did you learn about building a, a brand super quickly? Um, I definitely think like one thing that I would now talk about a lot is like a brand is not a logo and colors to build authentic brands that mean something to people is about a lot more than just building a visual identity. It's much more about combining like a really clear visual identity with like call it a verbal identity, which is like, how does this brand speak? Like what's its tone of voice and having a really clear idea of like the persona that sits behind that. And then like, what do we talk about? Like a strategic identity, like what do we stand for? What do we aim to do in the world? Being very clear about like how you live those values as a brand. So I think that part was really important. And the other thing was actually like, that a brand like evolves over time. So one of the things I remember Charlie saying to me is like, you don't think of an Apple when you think of Apple. Like you think of like sleek, minimalist, really effective tech products. And when we were going through the process of trying to name the brand, which was a hell that I hope never to repeat, like re remembering that actually like we bring associations to things over time. They are not what we begin with. Like you have a 1.0 and a 2.0 and a 3.0 of your brand that evolves over time. Um, I think was also like a really interesting and helpful insight for me. Um, that said, I did actually like, we basically decided on a different name for normal. Um, and I remember going home that night and being like, nah, <laughs> it's wrong. What was the other name? Uh, holiday. Holiday. Yeah. Um, Normal's much better. Exactly. Yeah. I think, yeah. And that was like actually one of those decisions where I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm going to inconvenience a bunch of people. <laughs> and like, but I think like sometimes they're just, those decisions are worth it. And yeah. in this case, I was like, actually, yeah, like we wanted this brand to like be able to speak both to the fun and like the, you know, like the joy of sex and the, and, and be able to sort of get cheeky, but also to really speak to, I think the fact that like lots of people bring like difficult and challenging experiences to sex. And so like to ignore that side of the mission or to just go with something that felt escapist, felt like it was missing the opportunity to, mm. to do something much bigger in the space. Yeah. Quick yeah. question. Uh, was anyone using Slido? Has anyone been asking <laughs> questions? I can see some questions down oh, here. Oh, huge. Yeah. Hello. I just realized we've got six minutes left. I'm like, damn, I haven't actually referenced Slido. So we've got... Yeah, I think we've got gone through like a quarter of our agenda. Yeah. Do you think the easy access of pornographic material has hindered progress 
and has made talking about sex uncomfortable? Um, no, I don't think so. But like, there's nuance behind that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, we're just leaving it. My yeah. God. So um, when you ask people in surveys, like, how do you self-educate about sex? What you hear overwhelmingly is like, Internet research, so Google, pornography, social media, pop culture, friends and partners. Like that's the kind of where people get information about sex. And when you dive deeper on pornography, there's kind of two important threads. One of them is that like most of the pornography that we see today is like heteronormative. So it's like it often focuses on like penis and vagina. It's often unrealistic about what produces pleasure. So for example, like most porn will see someone with a vulva orgasming from penetration. That does happen for about 30% of the population, but 80% need some kind of clitoral stimulation. And so like the ratios are just like off. So sort of people mm. take the wrong lessons about pleasure. You often don't see a lot of like diversity around body types. You often don't see consent modeled very well. You don't see like contraceptive use modeled very well. There's a lot of issues with like ethical production of pornography and whether performers are of age or are being paid are having good conditions on set like there's a whole suite of like complex problems that come from pornography and I think like if people are using pornography as it exists today as like their only form of education as opposed to kind of understanding like this is entertainment like this is what car chases in movies are to driving lessons <laughs> like mm. as opposed to being like this is like a manual then, then you have a big problem but the flip side is that when you ask people about the impact of pornography on their sex lives, actually the biggest answers that do come back are like, it helped me understand my sexuality. It gave me confidence to explore different things. It helped me have the confidence to speak to a partner about what I wanted to try. It, particularly for the LGBTQ plus community, it's often the only time you've seen sex that is relevant to you on a screen. Uh, that's starting to change now, but the queer community like self-educates at a dramatically higher rate using pornography. So I never want to say like, pornography is like an absolute negative but I think it's something where we need like much better literacy around what are we watching and how constructed it is mm. um, in the same way that we like teach kids how to like read advertising <laughs> and then we also like need much more kind of like diverse and better porn being made as well yeah but it's not it's not inherently bad yeah, yeah we could talk about that for a while and like where's the data and yeah uh, etc but as sort of a final question normalizing sex and relationships is sort of grounded in mental health and health how do you think about building this business stepping outside of you and compounding over time in your the best version of yourself yeah I think like working on a space like this is like a bit of a double-edged sword so like the amazing thing is you get to create a product and create like a community and resources that have like really profound impacts on people's lives and I think for me as well like I connect into a lot of those impacts like I've been through sexual assault and part of the LGBT plus community I also went through the experience of trying to get care for sexual dysfunction and like that process was pretty challenging even for someone with like a lot of resources and comfort talking about the space so I think like getting to work on topics where you deeply empathize with the issues is a real blessing the difficult part is like that you also like the day-to-day -day of the work can be like pretty triggering. Mm. <laughs> um, and so one thing that like when we started working on normal that for me was really important was like basically like having a standing appointment with a therapist. And at the beginning that was about like how do I create like healthy boundaries between like my identity and the work I'm doing? How do I manage triggers if they come up? And then over time it's become much more like how do you do general stress management? Like how do you think about bringing the most effective version of yourself to meetings. It's also definitely spilled over into like, how do we create a safe working environment on the brand as well? And some of those principles are kind of become part of it. But yeah, I think for me, having like practices like therapy are 
incredibly helpful investments in yourself as like a founder and an operator and just like a good human being to be around. And so like that's been probably like the highest ROI thing I do. Mm. <laughs> and I'd like highly recommend that for anyone who's who is like wondering whether to to take the, the leap. I think sometimes in the world of startups, it can be like we often prefer to use language like executive coaching or, you know, we prefer to frame like things like mindfulness in terms of productivity. But I think particularly in a world where like we're all going through a downturn, like it might be helpful to have more discussions about investing in mental health that are less about it will produce good business outcomes and more about like how does this allow you to be a functioning and like healthy human being as well. Mm. Yeah. How often do you go? At the moment about once a month. Once a month. Yeah. Sorry Hills. You can do referrals. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Can everyone please welcome me and congratulate Lucy. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.